Hello, comrades, brothers, and sisters, and welcome to a new series, Armed Love, the Revolutionary Counterculture of the 60s. I'll be doing this this fall and winter, looking back at a decade that they say, if you remember, you weren't there, man. But uh, another way of looking at it is that those who were there remember it a bit askew because they were, let's say, caught up in the moment. And it's up to us, the millennial and Zoomer generation, to look back at the revolutionary decade, defeat the self-satisfied boomer narratives that are too often associated with it, and discover what went right, what went wrong, and what a long, strange trip it's been. I'm going to try to stop doing the 60s cliches. It's annoying even me. Um, For this episode, I'm here with Sean Lovett, who wrote a uh, really great dissertation called uh, Mimeo Insurrection, the 60s underground press and the long, hot summers of riots. And he wrote another uh, great essay called Unfinished Domes, Anarchist Communes in the 60s. And I want to have him to talk to Peter Coyote, the founder of The Diggers, who probably more than any one singular group defined the 60s counterculture recognizable in media depictions today. Um, so thanks for joining us, Sean. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your interest in 60s revolutionary counterculture? Hi. Um, well, my, my interest sort of stems from trying to like look at the how people responded to mass uprisings in the 60s, mainly looking at like people that wanted to participate in them. And my work kind of focuses on writing and literature, mainly like a DIY underground press, the kind of underground newspapers that appeared at the time and how they kind of understood and talked about mass uprisings. And I guess some part of me thinks that uh, we all know what the, what a mass uprising is and what it means. But then I realized that like a lot of assumptions come with that, that uh, people will look at something like a riot and see it as kind of nonsensical. And what I tried to do in my work is see how the people interpreted those events and tried to articulate some a kind of utopian vision from them. Is there anything that you want to say about Pierre Coyote or the Diggers before we get into the interview? Yeah, I, I think the th- interesting thing about uh, Peter Coyote is just how many of the, the crucial, important events of the 1960s that he was in close proximity to and, and participated in. So the Diggers being like one of the more interesting groups to me as far as what was happening then. Uh, they're sort of mutual aid projects that they're well known for, for handing out free food, creating these sort of networks of crash pads, uh, sort of creating a, a, a kind of infrastructure for the sort of dropout a hippie culture of the time, but also how that those kind of projects developed a kind of network that, you know, we could think of as revolutionary, that mm. it's sort of belonged to a larger movement that included groups like the Black Panthers and it extends to um, a completely different trajectory towards the back to the land communes, the sort of flight to rural living at the time, which I think is so interesting that he was part of so many different aspects of what we think about when we say the 60s. We're also going to be talking to him about, uh, you know, indigenous liberations and Buddhism, political activity since, you know, his time with the Hells Angels and uh, and a biker gang, his time on the commune. It's a long conversation. I hope you stick around and listen to it. Uh, But before we start, I just want to read um, this manifesto that they wrote uh, in 1968, the post-competitive comparative game of a free city. 
Our state of awareness demands that we uplift our efforts from competitive game playing in the underground to comparative roles of free families in free cities. We must pool our resources and interact our energies to provide the freedom for our individual activities. In each city of the world, there is a loose competitive underground composed of groups whose aims overlap, conflict, and generally enervate the desired goal of autonomy. By now, we all have guns. We know how to use them, know our enemy, and are ready to defend. We know that we ain't going to take no more shit. So it's about time we carried ourselves a little heavier and got down to business of creating free cities with the urban environments of the Western world. Free cities are composed of free families, e.g. in San Francisco, Diggers, Black Panthers, Provos, Red Guards, Mission Rebels, and various revolutionist gangs and communes who establish and maintain services that provide a base of freedom for autonomous groups to carry out their programs without having to hassle for food, printing facilities, transportation, mechanics, money, housing, working space, clothes, machinery, trucks, etc., At this point in our revolution, it is demanded that the families, communes, black organizations, and gangs of every city in America coordinate and develop free cities, where everything that is necessary can be obtained for free by those involved in the various activities of the individual clans. Every brother and sister should have what they need to do whatever needs to be done. I was thinking a good way to start would be just to like kind of get into who the diggers were. And for me, I've been thinking about how they're, they're sort of a nebulous group, right? Like there's a leader at leaderless, a lot of contributors um, from different backgrounds, but there's also like central figures like yourself and maybe other figures like say the yippies that you, you didn't, you can maybe distinguish yourself from. So I guess I was thinking how you would define the diggers as a group, like what were the parameters? Well, let's look at the inception. The, the diggers came out of a small radical theater company called the San Francisco mind troupe, which used 16th century Commedia dell'arte plays like think of punch and Judy with humans And they use stock characters, you know, the erotic uh, maid, the stupid blowhard, the phony doctor. And we took those stories and we remade them for the current day to talk about, you know, military budgets and racism and all of that stuff. We played them out in the parks where the people were. And we were good enough that we could make a living by passing the hat. And then we did a very radical show called The Minstrel Show, which was a blackface show, three black guys, three white guys, all in uh, sky blue tuxedos, white gloves, uh, black Afro wigs, and a Marlboro Man uh, interlocutor. And it started off like an old racist minstrel show. And about 10 minutes in, the, the, the darkies tied up the interlocutor and they began to teach Negro History Week, which came straight out of Malcolm X's autobiography. So it was a pretty radical group as theater went in the world of the arts. And we met these two guys from New York, Billy Murcott and Emmett Grogan, who sort of pushed us and said, you can take this farther. You can use your imaginations as artists and your improvisation as artists to create theater pieces that people won't even know are theater. 
that will bring them into a world they would rather have. So the whole challenge of the diggers was to imagine a world that we wanted to live in. And when I say it that way, you need to know that most of the radical alternatives during the 60s were either communist or socialist. Nothing wrong with it, but it wasn't who we were. We were artists. We didn't want to have to do plays about heroic bus drivers and the people's elevator operator. We wanted a world where we could be authentic in it. So our job was to imagine that future and then to make it real by acting it out. So the very first thing we did was uh, San Francisco had become famous. It's being written about in all the newspapers and kids were running away from Omaha and Chillicothe and Georgia and Arkansas and New Mexico. And they were coming here and they were living on the streets and they were creating the phenomenon of the, the Haight-Ashbury, which was bringing tourists out here. And they were running tours down Haight Street and in Greyhound buses, people sitting at the windows like we were orangutans taking our pictures. So we just started spray painting the windows and we started saying to the city, hey, these people are hungry. They've got nothing. They've got no place to stay. And the city didn't get off the dime. So we decided, all right, let's let's do free food. So we sent our women out to the Italian greengrocers. They wouldn't give money to uh, food to men. And they got ripe food that day. And we took it back into apartments. We cooked up stews in big uh, steel milk cans. And then we put a free frame of reference, which is a two by four frame, six feet by six feet in the park. And we just announced free food, bring a bowl and a fork. To get the food, you had to step through the free frame of reference. That was the only thing you had to do. On the other side, we'd give you a little square free frame of reference on a shoestring and invite you to look at the world as if everything in it was free. And it was a way of bringing you into a piece of theater that had a revolutionary subtext, a revolutionary denominator. So someone might say, uh, oh, no, I'm not going to eat. I can afford to buy food. And we'd say, do you want to live in a world where there's free food or not? (laughs) So then we had a free store, which was even farther out. It was a real great storefront on Cole and Carl. We collected tools. We collected clothes. We collected furniture. We collected radios and televisions. We collected bicycles. We fixed them all. And not only was the store free, in other words, the goods were free, but so were the roles of us in the store. So, you know, Sean could come in and say, Oh, God, I hate the way these shirts are being done, you know. And we'd say, okay, you're the boss. Let's go. If we said, how would you like it? And you just looked stupid and your mouth opened. There was no sense blaming the pigs or the man or the system. You'd been offered an opportunity to take charge and you blew it. So the real point of the free store was to say, why do you want to become an employee to make the money to be a consumer, we'll give you the shit for free. Now, what do you want to do with your life? And so we had, at a certain point, we had a lot of draft card blanks. We had all the codes, how to fill them out. We had the stamps for different offices. And guys would come in on their way to Vietnam. And with a little, you know, delicate conversation, Billy from, you know, Athens, Ohio, might leave his Bobby from Cleveland, hang his uniform up in the racks and leave. 
That was our, our war resistance. So the diggers, we began living communally because we didn't have any money. We never got infiltrated because we were leaderless. I mean, there were some people that were like more into it than others, but there was a core group. And you mentioned the yippies, you know, Abby and, and Jerry Rubin came out. We taught them everything and they violated every tenant we taught them. They went back, they wrote a book called Steal This Book. They put their name on it. They gave away all the living scams of the poor people in the Lower East Side so that kids from the Connecticut suburbs and Jersey could come in and, you know, be hipsters. And then we had a big fight about the Chicago uh, demonstrations. They knew there were going to be no park permits at the Chicago Democratic Convention. They knew that. So they were calling all those kids out to be extras in a piece of police theater because it was going to elevate them to leadership of the counterculture as spokesmen. And we told them that's as corrupt as anything Lyndon Johnson's doing. Send these kids back to their own neighborhoods where they're not strangers. Teach them how to get the heat turned on in slum buildings, how to make the landlord fix the electricity, bring them back up to code. So even though I love, I loved Abby personally, I, I had this big beef with them and, you know, they got infiltrated. Abby lived the last of his life on the run because, you know, he sold dope to an undercover guy. No diggers were ever busted. The diggers were never scammed that way because basically everyone was autonomous and we worked together as a kind of anarchic group. And we did that for a couple of years and then, it kind of became apparent that my highest aspiration from my life was not running a soup kitchen. So we began to move out to collective farms all up and down the coast of California, New Mexico, Colorado, trying to build sustainable economies, trying to learn from the indigenous people how to live there. And we did that for a long time and it worked. And some of those communes are still going, but we were poor we didn't own the land in most cases. And when children came, they exerted a pressure on a do your thing lifestyle. You couldn't have, uh, you know, wino Eddie playing the Tom Toms at four in the morning when the mothers are waking up at five to nurse. So what happened was as children started to grow, people needed to be closer to schools or they needed more order. And so you had the same kind of, internal tensions that you do with the vaccines. Some people were going to say, don't tell me what to do. And they left and most of the land bases were lost, but there's still 106 diggers on email chain who are kicking in money every month to support 12 or 14 of our members that are old and poor. And we send them a couple hundred bucks each. So it's not like every month. So it's not like we, changed our stripes or sold our values out it's just as the times changed we had to change with them yeah and um yeah that was a great overview thanks for that uh of course uh, i just want to underlie for you know this is mostly for for younger listeners who might not be too familiar with the diggers let alone uh what happened in hate ashbury but a lot of the things that we think of as part of the 60s the peace sign tie-dyed shirts theatric anti-war activism free food, outdoor festivals, a lot of that is attributed to the diggers. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Well, 
Yes and no. I mean, there was a spectrum of activity. You know, it's like every every political group or every group always runs a spectrum from the diehards to the to the go along and get along. You know, there were guys with mullets, long hair in the back, short in front. They could work in the bank all week. And then at night they could turn around and party hardy. There were merchants who were just like their fathers selling stuff, but they were selling hash pipes and Indian clothing and, you know, symbols of, of a kind of vague nebulous spirituality. The diggers were really trying to push the envelope so people would rethink everything. But we lived in a culture that was based on profit and private property. And we didn't want to just recreate stores and employees and consumers. We wanted to get to the root. The more telling stuff that came from the counterculture was the women's movement, the environmental movement, the organic food movement, alternative spiritual practices like yoga and Buddhism and Jainism and Wicca, uh, alternative medical practices like acupuncture, homeopathy, naturopathy, all of these things, because we knew that culture was deeper than politics. And so we thought of ourselves as cultural warriors. And, you know, today in Nebraska, farmers are fighting fracking because it's screwing up their organic food. So we were trying to change the way that people lived. And to a great, to a great degree, we were successful within the blanket perimeters of unregulated capitalism, which is like saying, you know, we were playing around in the cancer ward. I guess you're, you know, you're sort of looking at the, the what your, your place was in the hippie thing. And, but by the 67, it seemed like the, the diggers were trying to kill off the hippie thing. You had a sort of march up for the death of the hippie. So I'm kind of wondering, um, what were your concerns with that counterculture? Sure. Well, in the first place, the word hippie was invented by Herb Cain who was a columnist in the San Francisco Chronicle. It was the same thing they did to the beatniks. They changed the word beat into beatnik. It was a way of diminishing them, making them small, making them a pop fad and identifying them as unimportant. So we were never hippies. I mean, we were armed. (laughs) We were not fooling around. Um, So we thought that the whole hippie phenomenon was accepting a brand and then living up to it, like all the tie dyes and the banners and all the Grateful Dead uh, paraphernalia that was for sale. They were all kind of brands, but you know, they were not fundamental changes. I became a Zen Buddhist when I learned that the fundamental change had to be in me. I had to end war in my psyche. I had to end anger in my psyche. I had to find peace in my psyche. Otherwise, I was just recreating the problems I was trying to solve. You'd be in a room with 6,000 people screaming peace at each other. So we were not, we were not big fans of the, the hippie scene at all, but we were consciously trying to foster and create a counterculture. And that's which meant you have to have ways to eat. You have to have ways to live. You have to have ways to sustain yourself. And it doesn't matter what they look like. You do your best. You know, it doesn't have to look like Hindu, Shvindu, Shiva, Biva, 
you know, it's just like we're Americans and we're creative and we're artists. So when you went around to actual communes, they were poor. They were pretty grotty, but they were also pretty magnificent. Wonderful houses built for nothing out of flotsam and jetsam and saunas and big water tanks and, and hot tubs and stuff. And it, it created a kind of ecstatic vision of life, which was far beyond the Hopi, I mean, the hippie uh, parameters. Uh, you mentioned that you were armed, and we had a, a question about that. Um, by 1968, you absorbed members of the Motherfuckers from New York. Diane De Prima moved out and joined the Diggers. We wanted to mention her because she passed away just about a year ago today, and her, her revolutionary letters just is reissued an incredible book. Um, and there's one line in there that says, there are those who can tell you how to make Molotov cocktails, flamethrowers, bombs, whatever you might be needing. Um, so there was this insurrectionary element to the movement. How prevalent was that kind of talk in the Diggers milieu? It was not prevalent at all. And I think it was youthful excess in Diane, who was my sister, who I loved and adored. Uh, I had the same battle with the Weathermen who were brothers and sisters, people I loved and, you know, had a lot of respect for. But if you think you're going to overthrow the most violent country on the face of the earth by blowing up a couple of buildings or setting a couple of things on fire, you're really naive. And if you think that you're going to do this by turning yourself over as a, as a tool to black liberation stuff, you're naive. You know, when Mario Cuomo just left New York, he just uh, pardoned David Gilbert, who is the father of Chesa Boudin, who's the district attorney of San Francisco, who was raised by weathermen because both of his parents spent his entire childhood and young manhood in prison because they were wheelmen for a black guerrilla family holdup in which two people were killed. I'm not... I'm not uh, negating black liberation struggles, but you don't have to turn yourself over to them. You'd be much better off organizing white people to be support and to change the political system because it's a different culture. It's a different mindset. So we, we carried arms for self-defense. I mean, I bought guns for Eldridge Cleaver. I went down to Woodacre three times because I could go into those gun shows. I used to be a marksman instructor. I still shoot on the weekends. Um, and I, I could go down and I could buy guns because it was all redneck city. So, and remember the first issue of the black Panther party newspaper was published by the diggers when uh, uh, Huey Newton and Bobby Hutton showed up at my house and wanted to know about the communication company. So I felt a lot of harmony and a lot of concord, but I think there was there was an element of of the white counterculture that was kind of macho and competitive and wanted to prove to other groups that they were more radical. And, you know, they spent years and years underground where they were not particularly effective. So I I, I don't I don't think about armed insurrection because if you really open up your eyes and you look at what's happened in Iraq and what's happened in Yemen and what's happened in Syria and what's happened in Afghanistan, you'll see it degenerates to the lowest common denominator. It's romantic to consider yourself Che Guevara 
But what it actually walks down to is armed mafias guarding their own turf. And it's a kind of romance that takes you away from much more practical work. In my humble opinion, Mm -hmm. or not humble opinion. Fair enough. But I, you know, I can't help but think that there was something, I don't know, something uh, utopian, and I mean that in a positive way, about this shift around 1968, when a lot of the counterculture started forming communes, either in cities or out of the cities, the diggers um, start pushing uh, this program of of the Free City Collective, which we're going to read as an intro to the episode. The Black Panthers turn to intercommunalism. uh, And I think there's still a lot of appeal to this idea of not necessarily forming a party and, you know, uh, you know, seizing power like Lenin or getting elected, but trying your best to live communism in the moment, but also defending, uh, defending your communes and defending your network of communes. And maybe that's not insurrectionary in the, in the way you were describing, but do you think that's similarly misguided? No, I don't. I, I wouldn't argue with anything you said if you label it as utopianism because it was utopian. I, I, I got triggered by insurrection because okay. it, you know, brings up guys in bandoliers and, you know, shooting, at shooting people or wrecking stuff. It's like, it's not constructive. It's not utopian. And you're not going to, you're not going to tear down a structure of entrenched wealth, 200 years of karma systems that most people are blind to that has them mentally enslaved. It's, it's not like Russia and serfdom where people were eating dirt, you know, and, and the, the, uh, the aristocracy was eating whipped cream and strawberries. The, the, the strictures and pressures of America are much more pernicious. And I thought it was much braver to be utopian, to actually live your reality and show how far it could be pushed and how engaging it was. And it engaged millions of people. Yeah, well, uh, I guess um, before we move too far into the 70s, part of the Haight-Ashbury scene, of course, was uh, the notorious drug culture. And a a book that's really popular now among people our age, you might have heard of, is Tom O'Neill's Chaos, which is about the Manson murders. But he argues that the hate-free clinic, which the diggers were very suspicious of. No, the diggers started. The diggers started the first free medical clinic, and Tom Smith took it over. Okay, so they were suspicious of it once it was taken over. Probably. Okay. (laughs) Um, Sorry, I I got that a little bit wrong, but I know that the diggers were trying to create these alternatives to these, uh, these clinics that were essentially treating street people and the counterculture like lab rats. Uh, a lot of the the writing. Wait, so I think you're out of sync. Okay, sorry. What happened was there were no medical services, uh-huh. and so we went to the University of California Hospital, and we got medical students to come down to the free store on Wednesday nights, and they could bring samples, and they could bring medicine, they could diagnose, and we started seeing people there, and then the is it was his name Tom? I don't think so. It is Smith. He, he began doing a Ph.D. thesis as part and parcel of the free medical clinic. And I don't know that we had negative attitudes toward him. I mean, it's been a community service for a long time. I don't have evidence that he was treating people like lab rats. It's just beyond what I know. 
All right, I might have that a little bit mixed up. I'm sorry about that. Um, but my okay. que- my question is that there was this big influx of a number of drugs, but especially LSD in in the mid '60s. And there's been a lot of speculation that was some sort of uh, operation. Uh, of course, MK Ultra was happening around this time. So, what what are your thoughts on that sudden influx? of acid, you know, besides the conspiracy theories, do you think it was more liberating than harmful? Yes, I do. Um, I mean, I, you know, I thought Tim Leary was an idiot, but I probably wouldn't have taken acid if I hadn't read his book and he didn't have the Harvard imprimatur. But the first three rock and roll light show dances in San Francisco were held by the, at the Fillmore, were held by the San Francisco Mime Troupe. And the first one was a fundraiser for Tim Leary, who was too embarrassed to pass the hat. We were raising money for him, for his uh, trials and stuff. And he wanted me to go around the country and speak with him. And I thought he was a little dangerous, and I was a little suspicious. I mean, LSD is powerful stuff. And I think it has a real liberating potential. It's not permanent. The, the problem with psychedelics is it's like being flown to the Grand Canyon in a helicopter. The Vista is awesome. It can be life-changing in the short term, but you were flown in a helicopter. You don't know how to get your way back. Whereas if you walk there, you'd leave breadcrumbs. You could get your way back. By walking there, I mean if you got there by meditating. So I don't know. I know, you know, Tim Leary's second wife, I think, was in the CIA. But does that mean it was all a plot? I don't know. Tim Leary, uh, I knew the people that broke him out of jail, and he dropped a dime on him. He snitched on him. So for me, he was dead from that point on. But so here's the thing. LSD really took people out of their egos. But one of my best friends, one of the diggers, clawed his eyes out on a bad trip and was sent to the insane asylum and drowned trying to escape climbing a fence blind and fell into a lake. Oh my God. So it's not something that you would just prescribe being dropped in the water supply. And I used to argue with my friends in the grateful dead this way, you know, who had everything backstage was dosed. Mm. Um, it, it requires a little respect when you're, when you're moving away the guardrails of your personality, but on benefit, I think it was dividing line, you know, Dylan's song, something is happening here and you don't know what it is. Do you, Mr. Jones, you couldn't even read the rock and roll posters at the Fillmore unless you could read the inlines and the outlines and separate the text from the, des- the design. So there was that. There was also speed and heroin. And one of the ways that I think that the the diggers got into heroin, certainly I did, once you once you task yourself with the idea of inventing a future, if you're being thorough, some part of you is gonna ask yourself, well, wait a minute, maybe they've already housebroken my mind. Maybe the things that I'm thinking up that are so far out are actually just within the perimeters of the playpen. Maybe these are the things that I'm allowed to think. So heroin was like so far outside the loop that you could be sure you were not given permission to do this. And so I also had personal psychological 
junkyard dogs in my psyche that I was quieting with heroin. But there was a convenience to that kind of political excuse. Maybe we need to explore and break through different territory. But there's also the regular addict dynamic of trying to quash feelings that are intolerable to you. I also used to shoot acid for Owsley to test it because he didn't want to sit around and wait 20 minutes to see if it was good or not. And Owsley gave a lot of acid to the diggers to spread out, which we did at Thanksgiving and things like that. So, you know, it really was, it it really was one of the uh, psychic fuels to a very different culture. But I'd be remiss if I didn't say there were dangers to it. And now, you know, Michael Pollard's book, Changing Your Mind, psychedelics are coming back into favor in psychology, and they're being used with PTSD people, and they're being used to try to help people with uh, obdurate personal, uh, personal problems. So, I mean, does that cover the territory that you wanted me to look at? Yeah, I think I had a little bit of a follow up, which was um, how I, the kind of drug culture brought you together with a lot of different people. And the, what, the ones that come to mind for me the most in that case is the biker culture. So you had the Hells Angels, of course, were, were you know, in the area. But the fact that they were hanging out with the diggers, some of that seemed to be partially because of the drug culture. You had, I think, your own uh, biker gang that kind of came out of your your friend group the gladiators um so i was just kind of wondering how this sort of outlaw biker culture fit if if, if it did at all fit into the political vision of yeah, the diggers i can tell you that that's a good question so you have to imagine that we're all on hate street and hate street was a stage you know dylan's song like a rolling stone Everybody was coming from someplace else. You were unknown, no direction home, like a complete unknown. And you could be who you presented yourself to be, or you could try to be whoever you wanted to be. So the Hells Angels were there. So if you were an anarchist, you had to come up with some way of dealing with these guys. You couldn't call the police. You couldn't just be afraid of them. So there were two Hells Angels that were kind of, Uh, in the group with us. One was a guy named Harry Henry, who was going out with one of the digger women, Julie Boone. He built her a motorcycle. There was another guy named um, uh, Harry Henry, Chocolate George. And one day we were having a party. We used to have these impromptu parties in the street. We'd just all go in the street, start to dance, and the cops would come and get upset. And Chocolate George got arrested. So my friend Kent, who's one of the kind of core diggers, started passing a hat around and we raised bail money right there. And we walked down to the park police station and we bailed him out. And that really brought us to the attention of the Hells Angels. They really thought that was was pretty great. Then Chocolate George died in a car accident and there was a big reception. It was about 500 angels from all different clubs at some little church in the, in the bottom end of the hate. And Emmett and I decided we should go pay our respects. We knew him. And so we walked into this room, you know, two long haired hipsters and the whole place got silent, just silent. Everybody looked at us. They were half out of their minds on reds anyway. 
So we just held our mud and we walked up to the, we walked up to the coffin and we said a couple of things and paid our respects and walked out. And the president of the San Francisco Hells Angels, Pete Nell, he thought that showed a lot of class. He really respected that we walked into that room full of bikers, undefended, just he liked that. So we went to see him later. Uh, both Emmett and I wanted motorcycles. I'd, I'd ridden motorcycles and built motorcycles. So had Emmett, and so did poet Michael McClure. So I wound up living with Pete Nell for three or four months, building a, a chopper, learning how to do it from him. And at the end of that time, I moved out to a, a piece of land out in Olima, California, which is an old farmhouse without electricity and had a five gallon hot water heater and little by little more of the diggers came out and people began to live. We had about 20 people out there and the angels used to send um, young prospects and young kids out there to kind of socialize and learn how to be with people. And they asked me to prospect and I didn't want to be a hell's angel. I had too many black friends. I'd seen stuff I didn't like and I, I just didn't want to do it. And so but I was close with a lot of guys for about three years until my friend, Bill, Bill Fritch, who became a hell's angel. His name was sweet William. He got shot in the head during a dope deal and he was paralyzed in one arm and one leg. And they asked him if they could do a coming home party at Olima where I was living. And I said, yeah. And they took him someplace else and they sent out two other chapters that I didn't know. And they basically they basically tore the place up for a weekend. We had a couple of friends there that, you know, herded all our women into a room and guarded them and saw that nobody was killed, but they burned the fences. They stabbed the dogs. They're basically telling me to get lost because it only takes two votes to keep somebody out of the hell's angels. And there were people there that resented that I knew so much from being around so much, but I was not a blood brother. I was not a prospect. So I understood that. I accepted that. That was fine. But we didn't have a bike gang. I mean, when I when we got evicted from Olima, I gave my motorcycle to Pete Nell, who had wrecked his in a in a crash. I just gave it to him. And he gave me an eight by ten tent to go into my truck. And when I came back a couple of years later, I built a new motorcycle. My first motorcycle cost three thousand dollars. My grandmother left it to me. I bought a crated brand new engine and put it in a rigid frame, 1938 rigid frame. My second bike cost me $150 because everybody in the club came by and gave me a piston or a wheel or a carburetor or something. So, you know, I knew those guys. I knew them well. I didn't have any illusions about them. On, in some senses, they were the fascist underbelly of the United States. And in some senses, some of the sharpest most tuned people that I'd ever met. And they were in my world. They were in my territory. So I had to learn how to deal with them. And at that time also, San Francisco, which used to be just a party club, just a motorcycle club, was under pressure from the Oakland chapter where Sonny Barger was. They were getting into strip clubs and speed and heavy time dope. And so the San Francisco members that wanted to be hard asses, they started gravitating over to Oakland. 
And so it was a different scene. By the time Altamont came around, it was a different club. Vietnam vets were coming in, really hard case, some murderous guys. And I was gone for that. Um. So uh, I want to shift it back to politics. And, and also, I want to get some of your thoughts on the present day. You know, in the last uh, 20 years, you've you've seen a lot of things from the 60s coming back, like the anti-war movement, these big protests against the war in Iraq. And in the last 10 years, the racial justice movement, Black Lives Matter, and the uprising of last year. And Occupy also certainly has some similarities to what was going on in the 60s. But a lot of the things that the diggers did, like you mentioned, the the minstrel show, I don't think that would fly today. I'm sure it was controversial then, but today it would be uh, even more controversial. And this concept uh, of the counterculture uh, of of like white dropouts with long hair being uh, white n words um, certainly that's that's not uh, the way you, uh, the counterculture young political people are thinking of themselves today. Nor uh, did we, by the way. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and there was some criticism of that at the time too. Uh, but I'm, I'm wondering if you think the movement today has made some progress, or do you think they've lost some of that uh that kind of lifestyle uh revolutionary ethic that you had well in the first place gary snyder the poet has a great metaphor called the great underground and he likens the underground to a river which surfaces above ground sometimes and then goes below ground and and the above ground is you know the mechanistic culture that fights for status and wealth and competition. People cut their hair short as a symbol of offering their sexuality to the state. And the great underground is the upwelling of poets and yogans and priestesses and craftsmen and musicians and artists. And they're both eternal. They tip in influence and in balance. But you can go all the way back to Thoreau and Emerson and Whitman as as surfacing of the great underground. You can bring it up again in the thirties in Paris with Hemingway and uh, F Scott Fitzgerald and Matisse and Picasso. So it's not a new thing. It surfaces and the problems remain the same. And so of course that racism is now we have cell phones capturing the execution of innocent black civilians, you know, before we had to take black people's word for it and the white majority culture, which is not can't even admit its privilege was not going to do that. But I think there's a Gordian knot. And and this is something I've been thinking about a lot and trying to spread and get people to talk about the Gordian knot tying all these problems together, war, uh, economic uh, disequilibrium, Um, racism, all of it. The Gordian knot is money. And we have a political system that's organized around acquiring money. It's that simple. And consequently, the rights of money are always privileged over the rights of people. And if you read uh, Hackman and Pearson's book, um, uh, Winner Take All Politics, One's a young chaired economist from Princeton. One's a young chaired economist from Berkeley. And they did a study to find out why the economic divide was growing so wide. And they were extremely exhaustive about it. 
They looked at education. They looked at computers. They looked at globalism. They looked at race. They looked at everything until the light went off and they realized that the one-tenth of one percent funds both parties. So in a certain way, you can think about the Congress as a wholly owned subsidiary of great American wealth. And so not to have this under discussion puts all of our political ideas like rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. Just imagine how America might be if we had fully full federal funding of elections. We, the taxpayers, gave every candidate the same amount of money. And you prohibited corporations from spending their treasure to affect public policy for their shareholders. And you prohibited lobbyists from giving money, as is done in many European systems. So even the television is making its money off keeping elections as a year in, year out issue and struggle and who's winning and who's falling around. But they're never talking about the money. They're never talking about the guy you shook hands with is taking money from the same sector as the guy you're fighting. The Koch brothers, the Rensselaers, the Coors brothers, you know, George Soros. Some of them are good guys, some of them are not, but it's the same wealth that dictates every term, every piece of legislation, everything in America, and yet it's taboo to talk about it. So in Europe, in France, where I've lived a lot, the election season is three weeks. Three weeks. Every candidate for the money comes on every station in France. They talk. People listen to them. They vote. And it's fucking over. You don't have Steve Kornacki whacked out of his skull on Red Bull trying to make <laughs> you think that a vote count is a horse race. They're just counting votes. But it's this is the way to... This is the way to increase the viewership of the news, which has exactly the same business model as Facebook. Mm -hmm. They sell your attention to advertisers. And because they're selling your attention, they've perfected ways of grabbing your attention. They put every story in the most emotional, the most combative, the most sentimental, the most heart-rending manner imaginable. And we sit there and we watch it and their bonuses depend on it. Their income depends on it. The amount they can charge for advertising rates depend on it. And nobody ever talks about it. Nobody ever talks that in Britain, public television is paid for by a tax on radios and TVs. It never goes through Congress. Our PBS goes through Congress. And all it takes is one senator with a hair up his ass to cut the budget if you say something they don't like. So... I call this rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. So the reason we have no leverage, the reason why uh, Senator Manchin, who is a bag man for mining petroleum and, and union interests in West Virginia, can completely block the president's agenda is because of money and because of his need to keep his campaign up and to fight off interlopers. So I keep relating, I turn the pyramid upside down, and I keep relating all political issues to this common source. Obama made 40% of his campaign from small donations. I respect, I adored President Obama, best president of my lifetime. I'm 80 years old. 60% of his money 
came from the people that should have gone to jail in 2008 for criminal Ponzi schemes, the credit default swaps that broke the, broke the economy, the world economy. President Clinton, Democrats and Republicans since Ronald Reagan have been betraying working people. Here's the simplest example. In 1970, wages were frozen. At that time, the minimum wage had a buying power of $10 to $12 an hour. 1970, $10 to $12 an hour. By keeping it frozen for 30 years, inflation cut that wage by 30%. So the $7.15 wage is the product of Congress doing nothing, neither Democrats or Republicans, and they all knew it. It was an invisible gift to the corporate sector. They cut the wages of every working person in the United States. So you wonder why people are outraged when uh, Jimmy Carter's Fed chair, Paul Volcker, raised interest rates five points in a single day. They bankrupted hundreds of thousands of family farmers who would listen to Earl Butt, Secretary of Agriculture, who told farmers, get big or get out. Bankrupted them. They're now working as, as serfs for big agro-industry. They lost their family farm. They lost their heritage of their, their relatives and all their, their heirs. For every five farms, they lost a business collapsed in the Midwest. The leading cause of death on the family farm was suicide. Bill Clinton cut the budget of rural mental health. I mean, back and forth, Ronald Reagan busted the unions, fired 11,000 air traffic controllers, attacked the National Labor Relations Board. Everybody talks about him like he's a saint. He was the head of my union, the Screen Actors Union, and he was a snitch for the FBI, turning in labor organizers. So there's this whole secret history which winds up with all these people in the Capitol who've been sitting around, they've got the opioid epidemic, they've got the crystal meth epidemic, uh, GATT and NAFTA shipped their jobs overseas, and the United States spent less money retraining our workers than any industrial country. And you wonder why they're angry. As they look at the news every day, there's cheerful men and women with good hair, good suits, dealing with irony and the who's going to win the horse race, and their lives are going into the toilet. So to me, the only thing I look at is, you know, instead of the 200 emails I get every day asking for money, like my $100 is going to really fight the hedge funds, the derivative traders, the, the finance, the insurance and real estate lobbies. Who are we kidding? And yet this is a taboo that is completely blocked from public discourse. Sorry, but you triggered me. <laughs> I really appreciate that we've come so deep into the question of money because for me, when I was young, what drew me to the history of the diggers was like having this utopian anti-money outlook. And when you, when I first learned about the diggers, of course, uh, what I learned about was this, what you've been kind of describing of thinking of a kind of, of it as a kind of theater as a way of like performing or acting uh, as if we're already free, as if things are already free. And what strikes me as I, as I learned more and more was just how practical all of your projects were and how it responded to like real like needs and, and tried to create like actual physical mutual aid so that people were, could have food, could have housing, could live outside 
outside of uh, the normal economic uh, chains. So I guess I'm wondering still is like on that level, like how much do you see the diggers as like a model for like practically overcoming the problems of uh, uh, that you're that you're pointing to, not just as a, a utopian vision, but as something that people should do. Well, so I have to. So first of all, I try not to tell today's generation what to do. I think they're more conversant with the pressures on them, with the with the difficulties that are on them than I can possibly be. And when we had the liberty to do this stuff, it was a different world. There was surplus being given out in the Safeways every day. Just ripe food was set out for garbage. You know, Reagan closed all those all those surpluses down. But we could go to the supermarkets. We could go to get food and share it. Um, so, and the diggers were, I think you have to think of the diggers as an art project. Because they were not an actual, always practical example. We had to get money. I mean, the landlord was not going to let us stay for free. We had to pay rent. So in some cases, it was women with dependent children. You'd have one or two women on a commune, which would be the cash basis. Maybe they'd get $300 a month each. But everything else had to be bargained, hustled, made, traded, um, it's how a lot of people started growing dope. They found they could trade grass, you know, for their mechanic or the parts store or whatever. So it's not that it was so much a workable model of an alternative culture because it was left to each person's imagination or each group's imagination how to do it. But I think it was inspirational. For instance, I keep thinking today like a, if I was if I was younger today, what I would be trying to do would be organize a national strike to make it unhip to buy anything, to trade clothes with your neighbors, to buy just enough groceries to live for three days or a week, to just stop the flow of cash to the corporate sector and to make it like a common cause. You know what I mean? Don't buy anything. Is a gallon of gas, as little as you possibly can. And if that happened for a month, you would have the attention of people. But failing that, I, I don't, like, I'm probably not the guy to tell today's people what to do. They will, they will come up with something. But it's incredibly seductive. You know, you can have all the fundraising rock concerts in the world that you want, but basically you're selling a kind of, I don't know, you're selling mass entertainment where people are watching symbols of who they want to be, lonesome for heroes instead of being those people themselves. I mean, so I lived without electricity for five years. People like Mike Bloomfield and Paul Butterfield would come through. We'd get high. We'd play music for days, you know, just Maybe we're not as good as Eric Clapton, but we're making it for each other. So I keep thinking that everything has been monetized. Everything has become a brand. You know, you want bad revolutionary boys. Okay, the Rolling Stones, 200 bucks a ticket. You wanted the Beatles, nice, homey, friendly guy, 200 bucks a ticket. You want a environmentally conscious guy, Bono, 200 bucks a ticket. But that's all surrogates. It's all other people being like being lonesome for heroes. So uh, the people that I like 
the Occupy people, you know, people who are going out there and doing it and putting their lives on the line to speak for change. And it never looks hip. It never looks cool. It's fraught with contradictions, but they're doing what needs to be done. Yeah, if you if you can find stone tickets for two hundred bucks, let me know. That's a steal these days. Oh, really? Well, you see how out of touch <laughs> I am. Uh, yeah, maybe in the sixties, two hundred bucks. But um, well, you know, uh, I think that even though you're not, I, I respect that you don't want to like be prescriptive and tell tell the youth what to do. Um, but certainly, a lot of what's happened in the last two years during the pandemic, I think, traces back to the ethic of the diggers. Um, especially the mutual aid aspect. The, uh, you know, I think immediately when the pandemic start, started, um, my experience at least is people turned that fear that you know, society was going to break down, how are we going to get food, how are we going to get toilet paper? They turned that into um, let's figure out with our neighbors, with uh, you know, the, the elderly people on our block, with our families, how are we going to make it through this? And we have to look out for each other. And especially young people, I think, felt a kind of, um, we're not going to die from this virus, so we got to help the people who, uh, you know, either have to keep going to work, um, or you know, uh, or if they get it, they could likely uh, die. And in New York, for example, there's now um, dozens of mutual aid projects, like one per neighborhood. There's these free fridges where you know people just come and leave food and take food all day long. Oh, that's fabulous! Um, and it's totally new in New York. Like I, I've never, I've lived here for. 16 years. I've never seen that before. And, um, you know, at the, the food pantry that, uh, I'm a part of, uh, if people show up, they say, who's in charge here. I respond with the, the digger line. Uh, you want to see someone in charge, you're in charge. And we just hopefully, hopefully people will come and, you know, keep this project going. So, uh, but that said, you know, that doesn't change, uh, the class relation that doesn't change, uh, the way uh, workers are exploited, uh, that doesn't change what's going on at the border, that doesn't change police uh, killing people on a daily basis. So it can't, you know, I think we're in agreement that it can't just be about consumption and sharing and mutual aid. There has to be uh, something uh, more assertive than that. Sure. Uh, so let me, first of all, recommend a great book that's precisely to the point. Do you know who Rebecca Solnit is? Mm-hmm. S-O-L-N-I-T? Yep was she wrote a book called Building Paradise in the Gates of Hell, where she studies disasters from the San Francisco earthquake to Katrina. And what she discovered was in every disaster, the people invented fantastic mutual aid operations, laundries, groceries, kid watching. I mean, every conceivable system. And they were so good at it that it created something she called elite shock. The elites realized, holy shit, they're doing this without us. And then they came in and took over. So the army, for instance, killed more people in the San Francisco earthquake for looting than the earthquake killed. In Katrina, they broke up all these neighborhood self-help things to drop in the FEMA trailers and, you know, get rid of half the black population of Los Angeles. And she chronicles each and every one of these. And you realize that people are endlessly inventive. They love doing this stuff. It like, it like breaks all the norms open. The other thing I would say is that everything takes much, much longer than you think. Like during the digger period, we thought that 
the country was going to be broken open in five years. And my dad, the last, the last time I ever saw my dad, he came to visit at Olima. And um, he, he I've never forget his last words. He said, you know, um, you think the revolution is going to take five years. It's going to take 50. And these are huge historical forces at work that have to play out. And the people running it don't give a shit about their kids or their grandkids or you. They've paid their dues and they want what's theirs out of it. Capitalism is dying of its own internal contradictions. I ought to know I'm one of them. And he was. So he said, keep your head down, take good care of yourselves and your friends and hang out for the long haul. So I've never seen anything in the intervening 50 years that proved him false. I've seen exactly, you can't understand Trump and the Republican uh, anti-democratic actions unless you realize that the richest people in the United States have decided that they want to die with all their toys. And they don't care what's left to their kids and grandkids. And if it means breaking democracy, they're willing to do it. So this has been a subterranean uh, element in American culture forever. Um, and now it's been it's been energized by Trump and they've got foot soldiers and they've got, you know, he's a, Trump's a warlord. He's got all his little troops and guys out there who don't know which end is up. So you got to be careful because these guys are armed and ignorant and they feel entitled and they just as soon kill you as not. So you don't want to get in direct conflict. I mean, I find the, uh, there's a group called the not fucking around battalion. Do you know who those guys are? Sure. Yeah. So those guys are really interesting, but they're all soldiers. There's a thousand of them that went into stone King part and, and called out the boogaloo boys and they're training their own people in weapons use. Cause they're not going to sit around and be killed by these chesty fuckers with AR 15s. So to me, what needs to be renovated is the notion of citizen. I don't want to hear anybody talk about the Constitution and the Second Amendment. If you're not willing to defend the rights of any American who's being besieged, you're not an American. You don't care about the Constitution. If you're just talking about the Second Amendment, that's the only amendment you're talking about. You just want to be the only guys with the guns. If you really cared about the Constitution, you'd be protecting Black Lives Matter benefits. You'd be protecting women's equal pay for equal work. So that's that's one thing. Here's another thing that I've been three times asked to go to Harvard to teach um, kind of agitprop theater and stuff like that. I think that there's a great lack of discipline in our demonstrations, which is basically serving to make campaign videos for the Republicans. And I say this as someone who was part of the generation that got Richard Nixon elected. All of our craziness in the 60s, all of the drugs, all of the anti-war fighting and screaming and blowing up buildings exhausted America. And they elected Reagan and they, they elected Nixon and they elected Reagan. So I look back to the original civil rights struggles people dressed like they were going to church they never raised their voices unless they were going to sing they faced they showed the american people 
who they were. And the real target of every demonstration is the American people. It's not the police. It's not the legislators. The American people are trying to make up their mind who's on their side. So if it were me running things, I would say that every demonstration should have monitors in yellow highway jet, uh, vests. And they have whistles. And at the first sign of violence, they blow those whistles and everybody sits down. And let the police take care of the troublemakers and the, the um, what do you call them, the people who infiltrate, you know, for the police or for the right wing. You just sit down immediately. You go home at dusk. You make your protest silent with just your signs so that you show America you're disciplined, you're mannerly, you're taking this as a ceremony. And a, and a demonstration is an invitation to a better life. And nobody accepts an invitation when they're being screamed at. So all of the Black Lives Matter now, they just have everybody cordoned off. People are shaking their fists. Nobody pays any attention because it's not the legislators that are going to do it. It's going to be the people between the Alleghenies and the Sierras that are going to do it. And my fear is that we've lost sight of the artistic and and um, political aesthetic of demonstrations. And so we act up, we act out, we wear garbage clothes. You can't tell the cops from the killers at night. And the American people are just tired of it. They just, they don't know who to vote for and what to do. So I believe in demonstrations, but I believe they only work when you're in control of the theater of it. And if you're not, it winds up as a Republican campaign video. Well, you brought up something I think is really interesting for thinking about the way things are now versus what they were like uh, in in previous eras, which is this this idea that revolutions don't take just a couple of years. They take 50, right? Or they take more, right? Like we, we, we're now well past 50 years since the diggers were founded. Um, so I guess I'm kind of uh, wondering about your feelings about revolution. We both... Uh, have read uh, pretty recently Ocean Newman's memoir where he kind of uh, expresses some regret for his, his revolutionary fervor and, and I think takes up a much more uh, social democratic approach. Uh, and I'm wondering, I guess, if you now 50 plus years on, you still hold to wanting revolution or if you, or if you moved away from that altogether, like, and, and if, if you have, then what's the secret to sticking with the revolution for 50 years? Well, you know, I lived with Osha. I love Osha. And he's a really deep spiritual guy. And I, I didn't talk very much about revolution in the 60s. I mean, I, I was suspicious of it. It was one of those words where everybody had their own meaning for it. You know, the Grateful Dead used it. God knows what they meant. You know, bank tellers with mullets used it. God knows what they meant. My people, my mother's people were communists and socialists and Auschwitz survivors. I knew what it meant. So I was going to be the last guy to call for armed conflict because I knew it would take another hundred years to settle down. When I go to Paris, all over Paris, there are little signs so-and-so dragged out of his house by neighbors and executed on the street by the partisans, by the fascists, by the communists, by the socialists. Too much mischief. The revolution that really has to take place 
is the revolution of understanding that we all come from a common source. And I may not like the fact that Donald Trump is made out of the same universal dust that I am, but he has a right to his happiness. He has a right to his thoughts and ideas, and I have a right to sit and try to block him and stop him, but I can't pretend I'm a different animal. I can't pretend he's the repository of all evil, and I don't have the dark side of the human spectrum. And that's something that we all did as young men. But a human being is like a radio that's tuned to the human spectrum. And everything is in there from Hitler to Mother Teresa. And if you don't know that, you won't be on guard for your own aggression, your own meanness, your own envy, your own competitiveness, which only you can control. And I've watched it play out politically for 60 years, you know, internecine fighting in groups, fights for dominance disguised as ideological divisions. But if you don't monitor your own shadows, you wind up dropping bombs on hotel rooms full of men, women, and children in Baghdad in the middle of the night and ask them who they think the terrorists are. And we don't have to think about it because we've defined ourselves as the good guys. We've absolved ourselves from any self-examination. And so we've had our ass kicked in three wars. We've killed hundreds of thousands of people. We've brought our own wounded back because we're the good guys. And we have to take up the mantle of history, which some prep school boys told us about. So the reason that I finally became a Buddhist and began studying it seriously was I realized that everything had the same problem, which was people (laughs) and the root of people is the root of ignorance and being asleep to your own potential for negativity as well as positivity. And that maybe it seems slow to change people one at a time, but they never go back. When people have actually had an inkling of the interdependence and interconnections between themselves and the rest of the universe, they're self-governing from that point on, as opposed to, political factions breaking up and reforming and reformulating. So I'm still pretty politically concerned. You know, I write a lot of letters to the press Democrat, which they publish. And I talk about politics a lot in my Dharma talks because politics is about the relationships between people, which is a central concern of Buddhism. But I, I think that, uh, I think that revolution is a adolescent confection I mean, I have good friends who study with Baba Vakian and these old communist guys. I'm just not interested. I had relatives, you know, who were communists. They couldn't overthrow a push cart. <laughs> it's easy to be theoretical. It's really hard to do something that's going to make a difference. And most people will completely overlook working on their own anger, their own jealousy, to be able to face others without judgment and question them find out why they think this way. And I actually have experience when I worked eight years for Jerry Brown of, of creating relationships with conservative Republicans that pushed the art council from a one to an $18 million agency doing lots of radical work. And all I had to do was stop my bad mouth and my negative judgments. So that's really where I put more concentration these days than on revolution. Any system that is executed with kindness, compassion, and self-restraint would work. 
communism would work, socialism would work, capitalism would work. But failing that, failing kindness, failing compassion, failing self-restraint, nothing will work. You heard it here. And the fact that we have unregulated capitalism, that's the disaster. And people will probably throw the baby out with the bathwater and they'll say, oh, if we only had a socialist system. Well, maybe that would save us, but that'll be run by people too. So as opposed to putting our heads together and saying, well, what kind of regulations do we need to protect people against the dangers and the teeth and claws of capitalism? We could begin fighting for that and demanding that. But, you know, people don't like to look at at slow, steady, incremental change. All right. That was part one of our interview with Pierre Coyote. On Friday, we're going to release part two in which he talks more about this tension between the social democratic new left and revolution. He's also going to talk a lot about his interest in Zen Buddhism and why he thinks younger people might be interested in that. And finally, we talk about decolonization, indigenous struggle, and the campaign around Leonard Peltier. So it's really interesting stuff. In the spirit of the diggers, we are not going to pay all that. That will be free. Uh, but that said, um, all everything we do on the show uh, comes from your support through Patreon. And right now, new subscribers can get a postcard in the mail from us. So go to patreon.com slash the Antifada. And please support the show. If you like what we do, you'll get all of our bonus material. You'll get access to our Discord community. And we'll send you a letterpress union-made postcard. So tune in on Friday. And thanks for listening to this first episode of Armed Love. Armed Love.